This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Dear Father, as we come before you this morning, uh, we pray that you may help us to understand your word, to take it in and to so focus on heaven so that the things of this earth may seem dim by comparison. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, there was a lady. Her name was uh, Florence Chadwick, and she lived uh, many, many decades ago. But she swam, she was a really good swimmer, she managed to swim from England to France and France back to England. Now, that seems like a really long way. Uh, and in 1952, she attempted to swim from uh, an island off the coast of California to swim towards mainland USA. So the day that she embarked on her swimming journey, it was very foggy. So she started swimming one hour, two hours, three hours, four hours. She swam 15 hours, but still she couldn't see mainland USA. She was physically, mentally, emotionally spent. She just couldn't swim anymore. But her mother said, look, it's just there. It's very close. Don't give up yet. You're nearly there. But in the end, she just couldn't take it anymore. So she climbed onto the boat. And when she climbed onto the boat, she realized that she only had a half a mile left to go before she actually reached mainland USA. In the news conference that she gave, she said it was because of the fog. If only she could see the shore, she would have persevered just that half a mile more and she would have made it. Now today in uh, the passage that we chose, uh, I want to talk about the idea of focus on heaven, the focus on the heavenly shore, so to speak. Uh, Last week, as we closed up 2017, I said that one of the big problems uh, that I see among Christians today is that we keep being, I guess, clouded out by the fog of present living. Right? We, we, we only focus on the things of today and we don't have a clear focus on the life to come in heaven. So last week, uh, I had a friend who I hadn't met for 14 years suddenly dropped me a note and said, oh, he's passing through Singapore. So uh, he would like to meet up. So I met up with him, and he's uh, uh, quite a strong Christian. He's from Australia, and he's quite politically involved. And he was telling me about how uh, he was actually part of uh, the committee that uh, was helping to run the campaign about uh, the same-sex marriage in Australia. And in his own words, he said that Christians uh, are dropping like flies in Australia because they are unwilling and unable to resist the pressure from society and the seduction of its values. And he was telling me, and I I hope I don't get in trouble for this, he was telling me that, uh, you know, there's this big mega church in Australia called Hillsong. You know, we sing some of their songs, Hillsongs. So he was telling me that actually, uh, even though the pastor had told the congregation that, uh, you know, they should vote against uh, this uh, referendum vote in Australia, or postal vote in Australia, he said that they found that more than, I don't know, a huge percentage, like 80% of the people under the age of 30 in Hillsongs still voted in favor of same-sex marriage. And he was saying that in, in Australia, uh, many, for many Christians uh, in society, they're only worried about a few questions. It says, uh, does this affect my lifestyle? Uh, does it affect my job? Uh, does it affect what I do? And that's not just for the general society, but for Christians, 
It's like Christians are just focused on the here and now, my lifestyle, my job, and the things that I do. Now today as we look at the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation really is a book about the future. So if you look, at, I've got quite a few slides and they're kind of diagrammatical. So basically, the way that uh, he, uh, the book of Revelation looks at uh, time is that it looks at B.C. A.D., the birth of Jesus, then the cross, and then the time of Revelation. And the focus is on the future, from Revelation, the writing of Revelation onwards. And it says that in the future, from the time of the writing of Revelation onwards, uh, there will be a time characterized by three things. A world which is dominated by the presence of evil, uh, dominated by the presence of Satan and his influence over the world, which will result in great persecution for Christians, as well as great seduction and the temptation to do sin and to fall away from Jesus Christ. So as we look at chapter 20, the focus then comes to the age to come. After the time of future, what, what happens after the end of time and to the age to come? And the very first thing that we read in chapter 20 verse 11 is, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. Now, if you look at this uh, passage, uh, it actually has a lot of things which are linked back towards what was written earlier in the book of Revelation. So this great white throne that John sees, we've actually seen it before. In chapter 4, John has a vision into heaven and he sees in heaven, what does he see? He sees a throne. So in chapter 4 verse 1 it says, After this I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. And day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and give thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So what he sees at the age to come, after the end of history, is this great throne. And who is there is God. God who is holy, God who is majestic, God who is the creator of all things. So at the age to come, God comes into the scene. He, he breaks into our reality. And it says there that earth and sky and earth and heaven fled from his presence. It's almost like there's a picture of the present reality running away from the presence of God. And the point of this vision is very clear that the present world, the present reality that we live in, our earthly existence, the things that we are so concerned about, our lifestyle, our job, the things that we do, all these things will pass away when God and His throne comes into the world. 
but it will be replaced by something else. So the earth and the heavens flee from the presence of God. There is no place for them. And then in verse 12 it said, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name is not, was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, John sees that this present world goes away. And what remains, what comes into this world for eternity is this thing called the lake of fire. And it says, the dead, both the great and the small, will be judged before God. Now, the great and the small encompass everybody, right? We're not talking about like giants and hobbits, okay? It's like the great people, the powerful people, and the small people, the normal people. If you're not great, then you're small. If you're not small, then you're great. It means everybody. And the sea in Hades give up everybody. And everybody who's ever lived or walked on this earth, stands before God in His great throne. And there is a book open which records everything you've ever done. Now, whether this book really exists or not, who knows, right? Is it metaphorical or is it real? But the meaning is clear. The meaning is that at the very last day, at the end of history, everybody who ever lived will stand before God and all their deeds are recorded permanently, right? There is no erasing your deeds. All your deeds are recorded. Every thought of your mind, every passion of your heart, every work of your hands, they're all recorded. Nothing is ever missed and they're all judged. Now, as a result, because we know that God is a holy, holy, holy God, it means that the destiny of every single living person who has ever lived on this earth is a destiny in the lake of fire. It doesn't, you know, we don't know again, is this lake of fire a real thing? Or is it an image of where we will be? But the meaning again is clear, right? There will be suffering, agony, pain for eternity. Now, you notice what this lake of fire is called. There is a, another reference to it. It's called the second death. You notice that? If you see that, it says uh, in verse 14, And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Now we need to pay attention to this. Because what it's saying is there is a first death, which we all, I guess, have to go through, which is physical death. There's something unavoidable for all of us. But the natural destiny for all human beings as well is the second death, which is punishment for the things that are written in this book, the things that we have done. Now, it means that we don't have to do anything. We just have to be human, to do human things, and we are going to go to a destiny called the second death, the lake of fire. But in verse 15, it goes on to say that anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now why is this called the book 
of life. It is called the book of life because the people in this book of life do not face the second death. You understand what's happening here? Because there is a second death, the people in the book of life don't face a second death. But what is this book of life? Because obviously it's a very important book. We all want to be in the book of life, right? We don't want to be in the second death, in the lake of fire. In chapter 21, verse uh, 27, which is quite close to where we're looking at now, the book of life is actually the Lamb's book of life. It belongs to the Lamb. It belongs to Jesus Christ. And therefore, uh, if you look at the next slide, right? Okay, if you're, if you're, you, know, you can click again. So if you want your name to be in the book of life, then you must belong to the Lamb. right? You must take refuge in the Lamb. Earlier on in the book of Revelation, Revelation is a very, very... Uh, a book which holds together, right? It keeps sort of going back and forth. Early on in the book of Revelation, it spoke about the Lamb, Jesus, who dies and gives His blood to free people from their sins. So in chapter 1, verse 5, it says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood, and has made us to be a kingdom of sorry to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father to him be glory and power forever and ever amen and chapter 5 verse 6 it says and then i saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing in the center of the throne and circled by four living creatures and the elders he had seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of god sent out into all the earth and they sang a new song you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men from God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them into to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. So what happens is to be in the book of life you have to belong to the Lamb, Jesus Christ because it is through the blood of Jesus that you have been freed from your sins, that you have been purchased from judgment. So you might uh, come and speak to me about this later, but I think the, the image here to me is like this. At the end of the age, at the end of history, the sea, the dead, the earth will all give up its dead. And everybody, whoever walked on earth, because their names are written in this book with all our deeds, before a holy God will be judged and everyone has a destiny to go to judgment, the second death, the lake of fire. But Jesus is there with the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, and he says, oh, hold on a second. Uh, this person, yes, he is guilty. These are all the deeds, all the wrongs that he has done on this earth. But I have paid for them. By my blood I have been slain and therefore, this person doesn't go to his destiny into the lake of fire, into the second death. He is now given eternal life because Jesus has paid for him. I have 
given my blood. I have freed this person from judgment. I have purchased that person's soul. Now, this is, uh, even within, we've only looked how many verses? Uh? Only four verses. But you can see how this blows your mind. If you, if you believe in what Jesus has done, if you see that the vision of John is a real vision, then it teaches us several things. The first thing it teaches us is that we must not get caught up in the fog of this present world. Because all the things of this present world, the things that we so treasure, the things that we are so enamored with, the things that we are so attracted to, we, it will all pass away. It will all be gone. When, when God comes down and is thrown from heaven, this whole world will run away from God. It will all pass away. But so our focus instead should be on what is going to be eternal. Which first up when we read this is the lake of fire. Now, I have a relative who uh, is over 90 years old, right? And, uh, and it's quite a dear relative. He's since passed away a few years ago. He was a fighter. My other relatives will always say, oh, you know, this relative of yours, he's scared of dying. He'll be in and out of hospital, you know, continually over the years. There'll be all sorts of things wrong with him, heart problem, kidney problem, every problem this person has. But he will go to hospital and he'll fight and fight and fight and then he'll get out and he'll be okay again and he goes back to hospital. And the relatives say, you know, this guy, he really can't see, you know, he, he just, he's 90 something years old already. He's got all these things, but he will not let go of life. I think many of us are, are scared of dying. Right? I mean, that's a natural thing. But if you look at this passage, you see actually death is temporary. Death is only an intermediate state because there is an eternal state, which is the second death, the lake of fire, which is something that is much more scary and much more terrifying than the first death. But the problem is, and the irony is, that we spend all of this life trying to avoid the first death. So, you know, we, we take our omega-3, we eat very healthy, we walk our 10,000 steps, right? We, you know, we have all sorts of things. But what really, really is going to matter is not the first death, it is the second death that really matters, isn't it? If you look at this passage, just these five verses, what really matters? It is not the first death. It is the second death we should be scared about. And for the second death, what we need to do to escape it is not to live more healthy. It is to be in the Lamb's book of life. And that's what we really need to focus, focus on, to be in the Lamb's book of life. So in verse... 1 of chapter 21, the vision then, in a sense, uh, returns, right? So in verse 21 it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven, the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So here there's a parallel back to chapter 20, verse 11, right? So the first heaven, the first earth go away, and he sees a lake of fire. Here, first heaven, the first earth go away. But he doesn't see a lake of fire this time. He sees the new heaven and the new earth come. But you notice something strange. He says, 
that in this new heaven and a new earth, there's no longer any sea. Now, I find that very sad because I like the sea. But the sea, again, is something that we need to understand within the context of Revelation because context is so important. So the sea, as we've just read, is the place where all the dead people were. They all came out of the sea. Maybe all the people who who drowned in the ocean, who knows? But the sea was where all the dead people came out from. So if there's no sea in the new heavens and the new earth, it seems to suggest that there's no place for the dead to be given up because there are no dead people in the new heavens and new earth. But I think the context of the bigger context of Revelation tells us that there's even more to the image of the sea. So in Revelation chapter 13, the sea is the source of evil. So in verse 7 of chapter 12, it says, Then the dragon, right, like the picture of Satan, was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Those who obeyed God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea. Then I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on his horns, and each head had a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. So if we look at the sea, and there's no sea in the new heavens and new earth, it seems to suggest that in the new heavens and new earth, there's no place for evil. So I know that uh, this is the question I keep getting when I visit the groups during the Bible overview. It's like, why did God allow the serpent to be in the Garden of Eden? Right? Some of you keep asking me this question over and again. Like, why is it God allowed Adam and Eve to be tempted? Why did he put, uh, you know, the, 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 the garden, uh, the, the tree there? Well, your answer is in the new heavens and the new earth, there is no serpent. There is no sea. There is no temptation because the source of evil, the source of temptation is removed from the new heavens and new earth. There's no longer any possibility for temptation to come in and therefore there will not be a repeat of the sins of the world that we live in. In verse 2, it goes on to say, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. Now, you know, we often use the expression, oh, you know, when you die, you go up to heaven. But when you look at this passage, actually, we don't go up to heaven. Actually, heaven comes down to us. right? Because the holy city comes down from heaven to us. And this is where God's people live, prepared as a bride for God. Now, this image here of marriage is something that we find hard to understand because we live in a world where 
I was googling it the other day that 40% to 50% of marriages will end in divorce. And even the marriages that don't end in divorce are unhappy marriages. But the idea of marriage that God here has is a perfect and permanent union with His people. And that is the picture of heaven where God is in perfect union and relationship with His people. And that's why if you look here at the vision, John sees, John sees, John sees, and then verse twelve, verse 3, sorry, he hears a loud voice from the throne saying, look, so what John sees, he gets an explanation. You know, it's a bit like when you go to uh, the, the museum and then you can buy those earpieces for like, you know, uh, or borrow those earpieces for like $5. And that's very helpful actually because I realized when I went overseas to the museum, when you buy the earpiece, you understand a lot better what you're looking at, right? You know, like sometimes you look at it like, what exactly is this thing I'm looking at? But with the earpiece, it explains to you, you know, this was drawn when, this was doing what event, everything. So here, John sees the image of this marriage, but it is explained to him that the dwelling place of God is with men. God will live with them. They will be his people and he will be their God. Now, this is a wonderful image because if you remember when we did the Bible overview last year again, what is mankind and humanity's biggest problem? It is this problem, remember? If you can see, how does a holy God live with an unholy people? Because from the moment Adam and Eve sinned, they are kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and then Noah is the same problem then God cannot go with the, peace, the people of Israel and Moses because they sin. Uh, he creates a sacrificial system, so at least once a year the priest can come and have communion with him. You know, it's like the people cannot go up to the mountain where God is because they'll be destroyed. God cannot abide, God cannot live with an unholy people. But here in the last times in the end of the ages, the age to come, God dwells with his people permanently. It's like marriage cannot be broken. And this only happens because of the blood of the Lamb. Because with the blood of Jesus Christ, we are no longer now unholy people, but we are holy people. Right? So, oh, you're going to click again. That's good. <laughs> okay? So, God, a holy God can now live with a holy people because Jesus Christ has cleansed us of our unholiness. And in verse 4, the new heavens and the new earth will not just be characterized by God being among us once again. But in verse 4, it says, He will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning all crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. You notice this idea of passing away. So the old order of things no longer exists, but will pass away once and for all. And included in the old order of things are all the things that cause suffering for us. Now, it's really interesting because over Christmas and New Year, I, I've had a chance to have many dinners and gatherings and things like that. And I realized that, you know, we live in Singapore, we're, we're relatively affluent, right? We, none of you look like you're starving, 
We all have roofs over our heads. We have clothes to wear. Right. But even so, talking to many people, there are still much suffering among people. Uh, people I talk to over Christmas, over the New Year, over all the gatherings. People suffer greatly uh, from broken relationships with people within family, broken relationships with parents, with siblings, with workmates. It seems like, I, I, you know, I talk to so many people, so many people are unhappy about their lives, even though materially we have plenty. And all these things cause great heartache for us, even tears for people. And it's not just things like relationship issues. We have health issues. Right? There are people who I've spoken to who have great health issues. But the picture that is given here is that with the coming of God into this new heaven and new earth, with the new order, all these things will pass away once and for all. All the pain and the suffering of this world will be gone. In verse 5 onwards, God closes this part by making his oath, right, in a sense. He says in verse 5, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now, here God does two things. He makes a promise. He says, I'm making everything new. It is a trustworthy and a true promise. And it is done. It is accomplished. It is finished. So he's saying, I make a promise and I have the power to do it. Now, you notice something interesting. How can he say it is done? Because you can't say something is done because it's, it's the future. I mean, it is done as the past tense. I think it's showing here the power of God, His sovereignty over history and time. Where for God, when He says He's going to do something, it is done. It, it's not as, it is as good as done, it is literally done. So if I say to you, I'm, I'm going to meet you to watch a movie tomorrow. Let's say you're going to say, I'll meet you tomorrow to watch a Star Wars. And I don't turn up. It could be because I'm not a very trustworthy person and, you know, I wasn't going to meet you anywhere. You know, somebody else called me up at 6 o'clock and gave me a better offer to do something else. It could be that the MRT broke down. You know, I wanted to meet you and I couldn't get there on time. So in order to do something, I need to be trustworthy and true, but I also need to have the power to do something. So God says, what I'm saying is trustworthy and true. But what I'm saying to you is also I have the power to do it. It is done. Now what does it mean when he says I'm the Alpha and Omega? the beginning and the end. So if you look at this diagram, I think it's quite helpful. Right? So, uh, you need to click a few times. There's many clicks here. So it's almost as if God is before the beginning of time, the alpha, alpha is like A, right? And He is after time. He's Omega, right? It's, it's like the A to the Z, right? And what He's saying is, because He is encompassing time and history, He's outside of time and history, it is all within his control. Everything in between the A and the Z is encompassed and controlled by God. That's why when he says he's going to do something, it is done. Because 
He is outside of time. He controls time. He controls history. He is beyond time and history. Okay? So, now that we know that God is going to do these things, there's going to be a lake of fire, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, then what should we be doing? Well, in verse uh, 6b, to the end it says, To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexual immoral, sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fairy, fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So two things we need to do. The first thing is to be thirsty. Right? Not thirsty for water, all right? but thirsty for the water of life. Now there's a parallel here, right? The book of life, the water of life. Both of them are found in Jesus Christ. And that's why, for our responsive reading, we read from John chapter 4. Remember, Jesus says that... Oh, you need to... Okay, the next one. Okay, the next slide. Okay, the next one. That Jesus says that whoever comes to him will never thirst. He'll give him water, which will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So do you want to escape the lake of fire, the second death? Yes. How do you do it? You have to be thirsty for the living water that comes from Jesus Christ. And there is no payment for this living water. There is no cost. There is no price to this living water. It comes free for anyone who is thirsty. But there is a difficulty which comes inherent with wanting this water. And that's where the second half is, to be overcomers. I, I don't really like this <clears throat> NIV translation which says victorious. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay. Because I think the original uh, translation, overcoming, uh, makes more sense, right? Because you overcome something. Vic victory is like, victory over something is kind of not so powerful. Now, if you remember, what is the, if you go back to the context of Revelation, next slide. Uh, no, no, go back, forward, forward, forward. Next one. Okay, so the time between the writing of the book of Revelation to the time of the end of time, what is it characterized by? It's characterized by a world which is dominated by evil, with Pressure, persecution, suffering on one hand. Temptation, seduction, sin on the other. Alright, so next slide. Okay, next one. So this is where the idea of overcoming, of victory comes in. Because you may desire to drink from the living water, but the world is pulling you away from this living water. The temptation to live only for this life, the temptation to be seduced by the things of this world, or the pressure 
to renounce Jesus, to be ashamed of Jesus, and to give up Jesus. Now, that's why if you look at the list of sins that come in verse 8, the first sin is the cowardly. Now, I, I know I, I wouldn't have thought like cowardly is a sin. Right? I mean, you think of a lot of things, murderer, sexually immoral, but why the cowardly? Because the coward steps back from Jesus Christ, does not have the courage to hold on to the things of Jesus Christ. They no longer take refuge in the Lamb, but they withdraw from the Lamb because of the pressure of this world or the seduction and the temptation of the things of this world. Over and over again in the book of Revelation, God keeps telling His people, do not be cowards. So in the churches, in the first part, in Revelation 2 and 3, God writes to the churches and He says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So yes, be thirsty, but you need to be an overcomer. You need to be victorious over the temptation to withdraw from Jesus because you're seduced by the things of this world or you give in to the pressure of this world. So in conclusion, remember I gave the illustration about the girl who was swimming all the way from that island to um, the mainland USA. Because of the fog, she couldn't see her destination. She, she didn't have a focus of where she was going to, so she gave up. And I think for us as Christians, it's very easy for us to be lost in the fog of this present world. We get so, I guess, overwhelmed by worries about this world. We get overwhelmed by the the seduction about all the the joys of living in this world or the things that the world says are important. Or we get overwhelmed by the fog of suffering in this world, the, the, the things that the world presses in upon us because we live a Christian life. Because we live in a world which is dominated by sin and evil, we feel pressed down upon, and at the same time we feel seduced to walk away from Jesus Christ. But I hope that today's passage really helps us to remember in our minds that all this world is temporary. It is only intermediate. It is passing away. What is permanent and eternal will be the lake of fire, and the new heavens and the new earth and the holy city within it. And given those two permanent destinations, then these are the things that we should be really concentrating on and focusing on. We need to focus and fear the second death. We need to desire to be in the Lamb's book of life and to hold on to Jesus because it is only through Jesus Christ and His blood that we can have a permanent union with God where there will be a new reality where there is no pain and suffering. So to help us uh, do that, we always pass out bookmarks at the uh, beginning of every year. So uh, this is another bookmark. So uh, I hope that 
uh, the bookmarks when you put it somewhere that you will see regularly um, will remind you of this reality so that you don't get caught up in the fog of this world and present living but focus instead on eternal life in heaven with God. Okay, uh, let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Dear Father, as we begin another year, help us to see that the very concept of time and year are just temporary. That you, O oh God, are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And you sit outside of time, you create time, and you make history. And you've told us very clearly today, dear Father, that the world that we live in, this present reality and existence, is going to pass away when you come down into the world again. And on your throne, you have told us and opened our eyes to the future that there is a permanent reality where there will be judgment, the lake of fire. We pray for each and every one of us that that is not our destiny, but rather we will be thirsty for the water of life found in Jesus Christ, that our names will be written in the Lamb's book of life, and that we will find an eternal destiny with you in eternity, where you will dwell with us and you will be our God. And that in that new heavens and new earth, the old order will pass away. And indeed, there will be no more sin, there will be no suffering, tears and pain. And we pray for each and every one of us that we will overcome the seduction of this world and be able to overcome too cowardice in the face of the pressures of this world. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.